0: This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcast.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. This Torah class is brought to you by torahanytime.com. Everyone, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for Margot Khan, and thank you for all the, the board and... The wonderful Hanhala of, of the Shank which is giving us this wonderful opportunity to come to Washington Heights and spread the gospel of how to date effectively. But I'm not going to touch, so, so I will in a way touch that tonight because I want to touch more of life in general. The enthusiasm that we got from Yom Tov. How can we use that to marshal our GPS to be able to have a fantastic winter's man, as they say in the learning world, before all of us, how to have a great winter coming up? How can I use that enthusiasm to go forward and what what message can I share with you to help you galvanize your energies and your thoughts so that you can have the proper attitudes and the proper mindset perhaps I can start oh by the way I always do this for the record anyone out there anyone who wants to talk to me or ask me any question on dating or Shalom Bias or anything like that you can always reach me at 305-206-1916 I live in New York in Flatbush Please feel free to come after the share and introduce yourself. It's good to know, because I do a lot of Shatchanus work, and it, you never know. You have to make your Ishtadus, which is what we'll talk about today. So, I'd like to start with a beautiful Devar Torah that I heard in this, about this week's Parsha. So listen to this, it's beautiful. The, the Parsha tells us that when Avram Avinu was notified that Lot was taken hostage by Og, Melech HaBashan, he, you know, gathered the troops, some say 318, some say well, the Lazar alone, and he chased the enemy into as far as Damascus through the night through the night Rashi's bothered by this and he says okay what's the problem why do I have to know about the night what makes the night so special would it have been any different it would have been daytime so I have to share a beautiful story with you after in World War II there was a fellow called Charlie Boswell he was a great athlete And he became blind in the war because he tried to help a soldier, a fellow soldier, rescue him from a burning tank, and he lost his eyesight from a mine. After the war, he decided to take up a sport that he never tried, which was golf. Years of practice and determination. Now that's the key word, determination, because that's what I'm going to be focusing on in this first portion of the drasha. Led him to win the National Blind Golf Championship 13 times in a row. Until one day, one of his heroes, the great golfer Ben Hogan, he was considered one of the people who started the sport in the United States. He received an award called the Ben Hogan Golf Award. Because it's named after this fellow who was one of the, you know, the person who founded the the sport of golf in 1958. Upon meeting this hero of his, Charlie was awestruck and told the legendary golfer that his greatest wish was to have one round of golf with this great golfer Ben Hogan. Hogan was honored, but he knew that Charlie was a blind player. So he said to him, It's not fair. I can't take you on. Boswell blurted out an unexpected challenge. He says to him, Mr. Hogan, I really mean it. I want to play you. Do you want to play for money? Now in golf, it's 18 holes. Try to put the, uh, the, the ball in the hole 18 times. Charlie, you know, I can't play for money. It wouldn't be fair. You're handicapped. Boswell did not flinch a second. Instead, he said, is that right? So you know what? I'm willing to wager a bet. Mr. Hogan, I'll play you for $1,000 a hole. I can't, Mr. Hogan says to him. What would people think? That I took advantage of a poor blind guy? I'll rip you to pieces. So Mr. Hogan, so Charlie ups the ante he goes, chicken? You're chicken, Mr. Hogan. Okay, bloated out and frustrated Hogan, I'll play, but I warn you, I'm going to play my best game. Charlie said to him, I wouldn't expect anything else from you. You're on, Charlie. Now listen to what he tells him. I'll tell you what, Charlie, you name the time and the place and I'll be there. And Mr. Assured, Mr. Boswell responds, fine. Mr. Hogan, I'll see you at the golf course 10 o'clock tonight. He knew he could play in the dark. Mr. Hogan, the great golfer, couldn't. What's the lesson here? Avram Avinu didn't need light. He had muna. He had determination. With that determination, he could beat the enemy even if you couldn't see them. That's the key. We have to have doge determination. I was zolche to have had a great Rebbe, probably one of the Gadol HaDor, Ravigdan Miller. He had a student who I got very close to. I helped him write a book in orthopedics, actually. Uh, Watch your feet. It was all about feet and, you know, items where the, where the feet are listed in, in the Torah because I did a lot of foot surgery. But anyway, he wrote a beautiful book and I want to share some of the thoughts with you on determination. And so, since tonight is not to- totally focused on just dating, we'll ask general questions. Are you interested in finding a better job? Are you interested in finding a shidduch? A house? Ways to make more money, to finish shas if you're a man, to achieve a happier marriage, to pray with more concentration, to learn new skills, to be healthier, to give more stuck The secret lies in applying the teachers teaching of our sayings, <speaking in Hebrew> the, way, the way you go is the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu leads you. Or another way to put it,. <speaking in Hebrew> he who comes to purify himself is helped. It's a powerful secret, and what's the key? Magic word: Ratzon, desire. You have to have a desire. I'm here tonight because I have a desire to lecture, because I have a desire to educate, not for any other reason. I want to help people. We need to have that desire. You don't have to be a genius to succeed or lucky. Nothing stands in the way of someone who's determined. You may be poor, you may be uneducated, you may be old or young. The principle can be be applied at any time. Make the choice to be determined and you'll be on the road to greatness. And determination makes all the difference between a person who's successful and a person who's not. What do you want to accomplish with your life? I I think these are like good questions to ask as we're just getting ready to start the new year, right? What do you want to become? Do you have a secret ambition? What great goal would you tackle if you knew you wouldn't fail? What would you do if you received a million dollars now? How would you spend it? What would you do if you discovered that you only had six months to live? And I asked the very same question when I gave a share on Erev Yom Kippur. What would you do if you had an hour to live? How would you spend that time? So let me share a story of determination with you. Beautiful story. About a man who writes about his grandmother who was a Holocaust survivor. My story is about my grandmother, a survivor who hardly told us about her past and what it was like to be in the concentration camps. She used to help my mother with the children when we were young until we got older, and then we had children of our own, and she then came to help us out. So, we had six kids, but we developed a problem with our 11-year-old son. The problem had begun earlier. We came from such a a model home, both of our families, my wife and I, he writes, were pristine. Everyone had Derek Eris, Bali But something about this 11 year old kid, he would not take no for an answer. When he was only five, we realized that this was no ordinary kid. He was demanding. He was stubborn. He was impulsive. What he didn't get, when he didn't get what he wanted, he threw a tantrum. My wife and I came from great relaxed families. We couldn't figure out where Hashem slide this boy into our life. We gave, a, we gave in a lot just to make peace with him because we thought that would calm him down. But his stu- demands and his stubbornness only grew. The chutzpah became unbearable. My grandmother saw it all and remained silent. One day when he was 11, he asked us for an expensive bicycle. We told him that due to his poor behavior, no way! You're not getting it. We decided that we would compromise with him. If he behaves well for a month, he'll get it as a prize. And he says, you know what? If I don't get the bike today, I'm running away from home. And so the mother says, don't make threats. He says, I'm running away. And you won't see me anymore. He shouted. And he stormed out of the house. My wife started to cry. I was helpless, filled with dread. What's going to be with this kid? It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. An hour later, Grandma comes to spend the day with us and to help us with the kids. We told her what happened. Grandma, what should we do? And there's an expression in the Gemara. "Shev Sit and do nothing. What? What do you mean? He's down in the streets. Sit and do nothing. But he won't come back, my wife blurted out. This is his home. He has nowhere else to go, she said. Don't worry about him. But he's so stubborn my wife said He'll probably sleep in the park And grandma answers So how many days can he sleep in the park? We thought she fell off the moon What do you mean how many days? He's 11 years old Really? I don't know if I shared this with you But she says to them, I slept in the street from the age of 11 to 16 During the Holocaust This was the first time she let us in on this What are your options? She asked. Even if you find him, you'll beg him to come home. He's going to extort more requests out of you. So, my wife and I discussed it. What else could we do? We came to the conclusion that Grandma was right. And now the time starts to click. And it's clicking, it's clicking, it's 5 o'clock, it's 6 o'clock, it's 7 o'clock, it's 9 o'clock, it's 10 o'clock. It's almost midnight, and the tension is really going crazy. The hours passed. My wife is bleary-eyed with tears and my heart beats wildly. Grandma, you don't understand. This is irresponsible. We have to go out and look for him. Relax. Hold your horses. Midnight. Both of us felt like we we're about to have a heart attack. Don't you know he's our, only, he's our son? Okay, don't worry. Wait another ten minutes. And she starts benching. She had eaten a late dinner. She finishes benching. Now could we go? No, another five minutes. We're ready to pass out at that point. We're about to refuse, and she says, What difference does it make another five or ten minutes? Wait, another minute passes, another few minutes, our hearts nearly stop beating. Suddenly we hear knocking on the door. Now watch how they handle this situation. <coughs> she says to them, Go to the bedroom. What do you mean? We've got to see how he what he looks like. But he's knocking. Let him knock. Don't answer him so fast. You go to the room and I'll open the door for him. What are you going to do? I'll tell him that you both went to sleep and you don't want to have anything to do with him right now. And he's not allowed into the house. Okay, so she answers the door and she, and she says, uh, can I help you? Yeah, I want to come back and sleep. What do you mean? You said you're running away. I'm sure you made plans. You figured it out where you're going to go, go to sleep. So now a debate ensues between grandma and the boy. And she says to him, they make a negotiation that he's going to go with, that, with her to sleep in her apartment. After telling him, you can't come into the house. They're left together. The very next day, she came in with a drawn-up contract. In which he signed the contract, The boy. That he would never act up again. And needless to say, they never encountered another problem with him again. Determination! But that's not the best part of the story. The best part of the story is next day they're having lunch with grandma. And they asked her the question. Were you afraid when you decided to let us hold back and not go after him? When well, she said, how did you know he was going to come back? Sit down, let me tell you a story. She tells them a story when she was growing up in Poland. We were good Polish girls born to Polish mothers, which meant there was no such thing as refusing to eat. My friend's mother took a little too far, and she fed my friend and fed her until she was big as a truck. But it didn't matter. When the Nazis came, they put us all in the ghetto. It's hard to describe their terrible hunger. To my friend's good fortune, she had reserves. Within a year, though, she looked just as thin and scrawny as the rest of us. Then we got sent to the camp. It was run by the SS. They didn't have much to do when they were bored. So their only form of entertainment was killing Jews. Or tormenting them first. One of the German officers was an enormously fat woman. Who her co-Nazi uh, you know, uh, guards used to make fun of her all the time. And we used to laugh at her also. The Jewish inmates. Her friends teased her that the quantities of food she ate could feed the whole camp for a week. She wasn't offended in the least. And suddenly she announced, we're going to have an eating contest. You Jews are hungry, right? Pick someone who compete with me to see which one of us can eat the most. If she wins, I'll give you unlimited food for a week. Do you know what that means to someone in Auschwitz? who's living on cold, moldy bread and some water? That was a dream come true. But if I win, the whole camp will be starved for a month. And when I say starved, I mean, I know where you're hiding your food. I just let you guys go. I'll confiscate even the crumbs that you're hiding under the boards, in the barracks and then I remembered my friend this is grandma telling them the story I sheepishly made my way over to her and I told her my idea at first she was hurt that she'd be a contestant in an eating contest but I said you know what imagine you win you know how good the girls will feel we'll have a first decent meal in in months if not years on one condition that the food is kosher and the menu is obviously the same When the food arrived, listen to this, we were in shock. First course was a loaf of bread with a bowl of cooked vegetables and a pot of slippy soup. You got to eat the whole thing. The second course, two whole roasted chickens with side dishes of rice casserole and raw carrots out. True story. For the third course, stuffed cabbage made from four heads of cabbage. And five pounds of beef. And there was a fourth course, and a fifth course, and a sixth course. And the rules of the contest. Every last morsel has to be consumed except for the atzamot. What's that mean? The bones. No limit to what you can drink. Talking during the meal is forbidden. And neither of the contestants could say anything except pass the salt. That's it anyone violating the rules and of course anyone saying that they can longer continue eating is automatically forfeits and they lose. They were given two days to prepare for the contest. The big day finally arrived. It was held in an open area in the camp in Auschwitz and the contest started. It's not that I didn't appreciate the grandma writes my friend's capacity for food when they started. I didn't appreciate it enough. As the Nazi devoured her food like a hungry bear. My friend ate slowly and methodically. The Nazi quickly gained ground, moving on to third course while my friend was still on her first course. Does anyone remember what's the first course? Soup, a loaf of bread, a bowl of vegetables, right? But the eating came with a price and my friend started to close the gap. I'll spare you the details. It was terrible. They had portions of food that even outside the camp were considered unreal. At around the 5th court, the Nazi lo- looked exhausted. You could see she was eating just to win. As for my friend, she looked like she was still enjoying every bite. The scene became pitiful. They were finishing the 6th course when my friend called me over. "Raisy!" And she whispered something. And one of the Nazi's friends called out, She's disqualified! Because she talked! And the judge asked, what did she ask you? She said, the cabbage is so delicious, she'd like more. The Nazi looked at her fork and said, I'm dropping out, I'll never win. That skinny little twig keeps eating and eating and eating. I give in. She wins. You should have heard the cheers, grandma says. We carried our friend to recover on the way, someone says to my friend. Was that stuffed cabbage so important that you had to talk to Raisi in the middle of the contest? My friend told them the truth. That's not what I said. I said that I was ready to give up and she twisted it to keep me going in because her determination was unbelievable. And they were able to psych out the Nazi and they won. Determination! Don't give up, no matter what. That's one of the key things. If I'm speaking to a single crowd, it even has greater emphasis. Greater emphasis. Our Rabbis teach us that the Maharsha tells us that Hashem determines the level of our wisdom, our wealth, before our birth. How then can the Gemara teach that we're able to change things? Right? Isn't it true? i We never know whether we have achieved the level that was predetermined for us, so we're expected to keep trying. We have to keep trying to do our best to achieve our potential. That's what it means. Yes, it's determined, but you don't know the level which you have to stop. In addition, our efforts on davening can even change the level that was originally set for us. It's up to each person to develop themselves. Hillel, as you know, classic example, is very poor. He could have excuses himself in saying, I can't learn, I'm poor. There were great rabbis who were blind, but didn't say, I'm handicapped, it's not my fault. They worked with their mitzi'ut. They worked with their reality. Yosef could have suffered as a slave, but he danced in prison. He kept on striving until he became ruler. Don't give up. Be determined. You may think, how can I change my life? How can I change the circumstances? But it's up to you to make those proper good choices. But you know what? You know what mistake we all make? The tendency, however, is to blame our problems of Hashem. It's b'shert. That's just the way it is. That's how we react. This must be b'shert. Translation, Hashem has decided things should just be this way. It's not my fault. Shlomo Amel comes to correct us in Mishlei. The foolishness of man corrupts that person's path, and he blames it on Hashem. When we learn to comprehend the fact that Hashem is waiting for us in order to help us achieve, we realize we're responsible. We can do more. We never have an excuse to plead helplessness because Hashem is on our side and He's the ultimate power. What does desire mean? The sure explains that when we speak about own desire, wanting something, we're not referring to whims or fantasies, but I'm going to give you a concrete plan. Number one, a clear idea of what is my objective. How do I want to pursue that shidduch? How do I want to pursue that job? How do I want to do well in that course? How do I want to become an effective mother? I have to have a clear objective. So since I'm a dating coach, I start by telling everyone, I want you to produce for me, or I'll help you produce for you a top 10 needs list. What is it that you need to make you happy? Now there's a difference between needs and wants. Wants are superficial. Wants are money or good looks. Wants are an apartment on the Upper East Side. That's not what's going to make you happy. Needs are, for example, when I'm dealing with... female audience, he has a Rebbe, he's striving to grow spiritually, the three areas that I always warn girls about to be on the lookout for, that was the first three rules that I taught my daughters who are married now, Kasan, Kabdan, Kamtan, look out for those three areas. Does he have anger issues? Is he insistent to have it his way? And is he not generous? Is he cheap? So, you have to have a strategy. that's very important if you're not sure of your objectives at least determine exactly what your desire is in a certain area two, a commitment to focus all your energy on a specific desire that fills your essence, you gotta be in it completely trying as hard as you can in in all facets will you pursue your goal no matter what is your goal important to you are you living for it The underlying core of everything we do is controlled between either going the positive way or the negative way. Meaning, will I think that I'll just let things happen as they wish? Or, will then the positive way is that I'll make a decision to choose to be in control of my life and to do what is right at all times. Hashem has provided us with an incredible mind and intellect and the power to choose to harness Our determination in order to improve our lot in all areas. The great Rabbi Yochan Ben Zaka instructed his students go out and find for me the greatest quality that a person should cling to. And they came back. Give me a second. And he told them, I'm not interested in the answer that, he, that you learn Torah and do mitzvahs. That's not what I'm looking for. One, here's what I'm looking for. Dedicate yourself to working on a clear, specific goals. Two, commit yourself to be willing to learn from others how to become better at serving Hashem, or better at what you want to do. Three, develop the self-discipline to master and control yourself in those important qualities which is honesty, integrity. Four, be action-oriented. And get on with what needs to get done, with zirisus, with alacrity. Do it quickly to develop and maintain a sense of urgency. Overcome procrastination, otherwise known as atzlus atzlut. Push aside your fears, and concentrate single-mindedly on using all of your abilities effectively. Focus on getting along with others, and I'll speak about that tonight cultivate sablanut patience kindness compassion and understanding take care of your health exercise eat right watch your diet eat the right foods in the right proportions maintain your health that's one of the most important mitzvahs in the Torah I want to share with you a story on determination while we're there A woman writes, I was sitting at a simcha with a woman who I didn't know. She, had, she was commiserating that she had a 26-year-old daughter in Shadokham. And she says to her, I don't know you, but it's so hard these days to get a yes from a good boy. Just the other day, another my Yochevet got another no. So she says to her, maybe I could share a story with you. The lady's name, she tells her in the story, her name is Rivki, Kleinhardt. Was the youngest of 11 children. She was the beloved baz Zakunim. Her father learned in Kolal for 10 years and then it was time to marry off. He had 11 kids. To marry them off. So he decided to become a Rebbe. But that wasn't still producing enough income. So he opened a business in wholesale paper goods. And he was amazingly successful. He was amazingly successful. And he sold it for a handsome profit. And he decided back to Kolel where he could learn Torah. What else could you want? Fantastic life. When Rabbi Mrs. Kleinhard decided now was the time to take Rivki into Shaduchim. But Rivki grew up differently than the rest of her brothers and sisters who shared four beds to a room. This was a girl who grew up in a beautiful big home which was furnished magnificently. This was a girl who went to Eretz Israel once a year for vacation. Because she had lived with the father that made money. The other older siblings, the father had not made money. He was in Kolel. But, so they decided to give her classes. and she, They gave her art, art classes and she was a phenomenal artist. Most of Rivki's older siblings were married to Yeshivasha families. But Rabbi and Mrs. Kleinhard decided it's not for Rivki. She was a Baal Abadishir person. Her parents had a different vision for her, though. She grew up in the years of plenty. Her father told her, we didn't raise you like your older brothers and sisters. We feel you need a different type of family, more balabatish. You know, he tells his wife, Rivki has an art scene in Shaman. I don't think a typical yeshiva bacha would just make it for her. So, Rivki's parents had already married off ten children. One day, Rabbi Kleinhardt bounces into the house with an exciting news. I found the perfect boy for Rivki. Rabbi Karnat Chavrusa, Sholem Mulek, had a brother living in a different city who was a cardiologist. Sholem was making bar mitzvah that week, his roommate. I mean, I'm sorry, his Chavrusa. And Rabbi Karnat got to meet the brother who was the cardiologist. More importantly... He had an opportunity to speak in learning with, the, with his son, a 22-year-old boy. And he was so impressed with this boy. And he said, I have to have this guy as my son-in-law. He told his wife, he's a rare breed, a Balmidos, who's serious about learning, but has a flair and a panache. And even knows what the word panache means. This is a boy who's used to a certain standard of living, and will make sure his family's comfortable. Even though he'll still make Torah his central priority in his life. Sounds good, Mrs. Kleinhardt said. Can you ask Yechav to suggest a shidduch? I asked him. He said, it'll never happen. Not in a million years. Okay. He said, his brother and his sister law will never hear of doing a shidduch with the Yeshiva Shef family because they don't want their son to be trapped in a kolel all his life. But Mrs. Kleinhardt said, you should tell him that you could support. Shalom says they couldn't care less how much money we have. They're not interested. And not surprised, Solomon anyway, pursued the shidduch, he called back the next day, flat no, they're not interested. There's nothing to talk about, he said, you wait to shoot shivish for my brother and sister-in-law, maybe if you become a lawyer you'll change things and he'll take a look at the shidduch again. Not easily deterred, Rabbi Kalimah began calling shachan after Shatran after shachan asking them to suggest the shidduch, each one got a no, until they got to Mrs. Bolkin, who was called the bulldozer, because no one said no to her. I can get a yes out of anyone, she said. The shidduch, don't worry, he's as good as done. She was forced to eat her words. However, in report to the calling that the muleks had said no. Not now, not ever. In the meantime, Rifki went out with a few boys, but none of the shidduchim went past the third date. A day, a year and a half after Rabbi Kleinhardt had first met Binyamin, he was having a talk on the phone with his oldest daughter, Feigi. What a shame, he tells her, that that Muluk shidduch can't happen. Feigi asks her father, why not that? Because they said no to every shidduchim that we sent to propose the shidduch. And trust me, I sent quite a few. I gave up. So listen to what the daughter tells her father. Tati, when did anyone else's opinion ever stop you? When most people said you'd never manage in Kola for for four years, you did it, you lasted ten. When they said you'd never make it in business, you became super successful. When people said you'd be a lousy investor, you did super well on the stock market. When people said you were crazy to go back to Kola in your forties, you did it. So when did other people's opinion ever stop you? Why should that stop you? He was silent. You know what, Peggy? You're right. Maybe I was just embarrassed. The next day, our had called Binyamin, Binyamin is the boy. He called his Rosh Khabura And he asked him, Could you do me, please, do me a favor. Call the his father and tell him to please suggest a shidduch again for us. Tell him, I may be hopelessly yeshivish, but my daughter is nothing like me. Out of respect for Binyamin's Rosh Khabura, Dr. Mulek politely responded, You know what? Okay, I'll let my wife check into it. But I want to tell you, the Shidduch has been mentioned to us numerous times and we've said no. We don't see her as a a fit for our son. Mrs. Mulek made the phone call, she liked what she heard about Rivki especially. The fact was that, as I said before, Rivki was artsy and Mrs. Mulek collected art and loved art. It happens, look at how Shem runs the world. Banyam Mulick had just finished dating a girl that Mrs. Mulik had really had high hopes for. And at that it didn't work out. And at that moment he was available. Alright, she said to her husband with a sigh, let Benny go out with the Kleinhardt girl. At least we'll get her father off our backs. After getting a yes from the Rosh Chabura, Rabbi Mrs. Kleinhardt told her, Wait a day. Don't tell him yes so fast. And then after that date went? She went back and she said, they're interested. Mrs. Mulek said the day that Binyamin went to date her on the first date, mark my words to her husband, this girl is going to be our daughter-in-law. Her words proved prophetic. Three weeks later, Binyamin and Rivki were engaged. It ended up that all the mechutanim that the Muleks had, they were the closest to the Kleinhearts Rifki developed a wonderful relationship with her mother-in-law especially since they both both loved art she finally found out about she never knew that there was an initial opposition to the Shidduch and as the lady telling the other lady at the Simcha about this story remember the, the woman who had the issue with her daughter and they lived happily ever after so she says, how do you know? she says, because I'm Rifki. and that was me and that was my story. It was my father's dogged determination not to give up. That's the key. And don't we see the same thing in this week's Parsha? All those years, Avram and Sarah were begging for a son to become more aware of Hashem, more successful in this world. And Avram was in his 70s when he pleaded with Hashem and he tells him, If you don't give me a son, I'm worthless. I'm empty. I'm naked. I'm childless. And nothing happened. HaKadosh Baruch pressed and pressed. And Avraham and Saul responded with the achievement of more and more awareness of Hashem. They pour out their hearts in prayer day in, day out for another 30 years. Hashem squeezes us sometimes. Because He wants greatness out of us. Determination done let's move on to another area your friends tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are one of the essential ingredients that I want you to think about is assess the people that you're spending time with and the influence that they have on you let me share an incredible story a woman writes she was 23 when she got married she had two wonderful friends who had gotten married at 19 and 20 we tried to stay close, but you know what happens when you get married? The talk is about diapers and going to, to, to your job and work and, and school and we didn't have the same interests anymore. And they would tell me how they coped with the various challenges as married women. And especially how they made every effort to be close with their mother-in-laws. It was like a contest who got the best mother-in-law. Each showered her mother-in-law with gifts and surprises and it's really appeared to me and whenever a shidduch was suggested to me I was so influenced by my friends and the issue of the mother-in-laws I would ask the shatran what's the mother of the boy like? and she'd remind me what are you worried about the mother for? you're marrying the boy and eventually I met the man of my dreams <clears throat> a year passed and I had a baby girl my in-laws had bought an apartment for us which was farther out, about two hours away from Yerushalayim. And I lost touch with my first couple of friends. We moved into this apartment in a distant neighborhood. And there, I started making new friends, because, you know, if you don't see them, they leave you. Out of touch, out of sight, out of mind. But my two new friends were totally different from the ones that I had before. One was a stay-at-home mom, and the other worked in the office. And he would start to tell me, "You know, I got to get out. You can't be worried about your kids all the time. You've got to get out a little." I started telling them about how wonderful my mother-in-law was, and he said, "You got to be kidding. Your What are you talking about? What they said about their mother-in-laws was awful. Nothing but bad things." I couldn't believe someone could speak so badly of their mother-in-law. In In the next few months I got a crash course in a world I'd never known. A world of mean, lying, critical mother-in-laws who take advantage of their daughters-in-law. And who do everything they can to make their lives miserable. I was so happy that my mother-in-law wasn't like that. And we had a custom in minhag that we'd go to my in-laws for Shabbos every three weeks. This meant a lot to my husband. One Shabbos, my husband's sister and her family were invited to. So we were going to go on the same Shabbos that I'd be there with my husband and his sister and her husband. During the week, my sister-in-law called me to ask if she could have the room that we always usually got when we went to the apartment. I didn't want to switch because the alternative wasn't as accommodating, but her reason was pretty convincing, so I agreed. I'm not sure why, but I told my friends what happened. And they started to create a problem. No, it's not your sister-in-law. Your mother-in-law is behind the whole thing. She just used your sister-in-law as an opportunity to. to you should, she should tell you. She's taking advantage of you. You're a pushover. You're a silly softie. I was in a bad mood even before I arrived for that Shabbos at my mother-in-law's house. I held on to my sense of injustice, and on Sunday I told my friends about it where I lived abroad I mean outside of Yerushalayim well we told you your mother's law isn't any different than our ours they're all bad I didn't answer them because I had nothing to say I talked it off with my husband he didn't understand what's the commotion about my sister will probably called my mother he told her to tell her that she needs a room she was polite about it my mom didn't want to get involved what's the big deal so I splurted out why did you have to go behind my back she didn't go behind your back. She didn't want to take sides. She even figured you guys work it out. You're just defending her. Sure, I said, look how a great girl becomes miserable. Your mother plots and schemes behind my back for noble reasons. I'm the bad one who doesn't see this as a virtue. Ladies, or ladies and gentlemen, for the camera, you have no idea how often this happens. How well-meaning good people get turned in the wrong direction. I've seen it in my life too many times. By those individuals who are mesit, as we say in Hebrew, insiders, troublemakers, no-goodniks. Dropping a word here and a word there. People whose medos are not where they need to be. The next day I told my friends what happened with my husband and they all me with advice. You have to face up to this evil. Over the next six months my relationship with my husband's family deteriorated drastically to the point that we weren't even talking. All because she took this advice. I won't go into detail but let me tell you that when I went to my mother-in-law I stopped going to her for Shabbos. I cut off all contact with my sister-in-laws except for attending simchas and even then I wouldn't talk to them. I felt bitter and frustrated. All because of a accommodation over Shabbos for one week. My mother-in-law tried to patch things up. She talked to me. She cried on the phone. "Why Why are you feeling this way? We didn't mean to hurt you. I'd go back and tell my friends and they would say, No, 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 don't listen to our crocodile tears. Two years passed. During which I expected nothing from my mother-in-law or sister-in-law. I'm pretending to have a cordial relationship. By now I had four children. Look how life goes on. Time flies by. How many cases do we know of families that are fractured? Because people say things. Inappropriate things. Because they're diverted by the Tahara. And then, this, here comes the issue. The two-bedroom apartment that we owned outside of Shillong far away was too small for us. We were forced to look for a new apartment and after quite a search, we found a spacious apartment back in the neighborhood where we started when we first got married. Which meant that she wasn't going to see her old fr- her new friends anymore and now she was getting reacquainted with her old friends. There was a vacuum. Who do you think stepped in to fill the vacuum? None other than my two first friends. And do you think the subject of mother in law came up? It sure did. I told him everything that happened. And he sat there. How could you behave that way? You have to do something about it. Go on vacation with her. Invite her. Invite your sister-in-law to the house. Make shalom. You can't live this way. Within a few months, I found myself drawn to my husband's family once again. And the love and warmth in my relationship with my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law. 20 years have passed since. My oldest daughter is married, and I've become a mother-in-law myself. Recently, I talked with my husband about that hard time we went through with my mother-in-law. And we started recalling what happened in that tiny apartment. And my husband said, it wasn't the apartment. It was the terrible friends. Don't blame the apartment it was the friends that you had and they didn't tell you something I realized that how do you think we came to move back to the old the old neighborhood I took a mortgage out on an apartment I couldn't afford but I knew that if I didn't do something my marriage was at stake first it was my mother, then it was my sister and and the final ultimate casualty would have been my marriage not far fetched by the way just last week, I was on the phone with a divorced man. He's 42. He's a great guy. He's a Ben Torah. And he's going out with one, a student of mine. He used to come to my showroom. I haven't seen her in a while. He's ready to get engaged after 14 or 15 dates. She's not even there. And I said, what's going on? He says to me, she lives with four roommates. Two are divorced and two are single for a very long time the girl that we're talking about is high, high 30s and what do you think she's hearing all day? good stuff? I don't think so and her environment is destroying her to the point where they had to go their separate ways look at your environment look and see who's influencing you and ensure that that, that the people that are in your lives are positive role models I discovered an insight that made me want to share my story. I found a new meaning to the saying, tell me who your friends are, and I'll tell you who you are. If you want to know who you are, well, check out your friends. But I have a different interpretation. I think your friends tell you who you want to be and who you will be. If you live surrounded by arrogant, haughty, hedonistic friends, then that's what you'll be, and that's what you are. So be very careful of who influences you. It's so important. Watch out for those toxic environments. Let's reflect now on how to create a feeling of simcha going into this coming year. right? Rav Zalek Piskin writes something beautiful recently. I read a poem that moved me. It was written by the late Rav Yahu Desler from Iqtav Yahu, one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, Rav Yahu Desler from England. And he wrote a poem, and he translates it for us in English. The past is only memories, the future is but just hopes. Focus on the present, and that's going to be the topic, the say the subject that I'm going to treat in the next few minutes. Focus on the present, for that is where your life really is. Because life consists only of tests. The rabbi writes, I've memorized this poem and repeated it frequently over the years. It's profound. It sums up one of the most important lessons we all need to live our lives by. We have to live life to the fullest. Much... Pain and stress and distress comes from needlessly thinking about past comments that people made to us. Who cares? What's the difference? Let it go. One of the things that I share with many of the Shatchanim that I work with, you know, I go to Ura, I, I teach I, workshops at Shatchanim. I said, what has happened to people? They're so fragile today. They're so They get upset so easily. Things bother people so much. Why is that? Much stress comes from being obsessed about past mistakes and er and errors. About worrying about potential suffering that hasn't even happened. Yes, our past has tremendous impact on our lives, but we can't live there. Memories are valuable. Not remembering the past is important, right? But being hampered and being limited by our past is a serious handicap. The greater our ability to master focusing on what we can think and do now, in the present. What can I accomplish? Achshav, now. The more we're able to transcend our limitations. We need a plan for the future. We need the wisdom to realize the future results of what we say and what we do. Again, you hear the same theme. Hashem is looking for us to act. It's possible to imagine how great things will turn out, but imagination is not a reality. We've got to have a strategy, a plan. We've got to live in the present. And what is life but an orchestration of tests and challenges. And every test is there to elevate us and help us grow and raise us. When we are well prepared for the tests and we know that we're skilled at it, we can do great work. We just have to be prepared. Let's say I have a bio exam or a chemistry exam and I've studied real hard. I don't mind going in there. I want to take this test. Because I'm securing the fact that I've prepared for it. And the rabbi writes, someone said to me, my life is full of one disappointment after another. I feel frustrated and upset when I think about all the things that I haven't worked out. When I think about my future, I don't expect that things will get much better. I feel simply awful most of the time. My life is dull and empty. And he tells him, you're not alone. But from what you told me about your life, you're only one attitude away from totally transforming your life. Yes, you've experienced many disappointments. In the past, the problem is that you keep reliving your disappointments over and over and over again. And the more you focus on those past disappointments, the more they color your life. Your autobiography is called My Life Until Now. With no now forward. You keep reading the same disappointing chapters of the book over and over again. And that's the problem. What you focus on expands your life. And that's important. So we have to focus on the now. Let's remind you something. On the day you were born, Hashem said the following to all of us. I bless you. In four ways. The day we were born, He said, I bless you with simcha, with joy. Whenever you say a bracha or study Torah, do it with simcha. Joy will make every spiritual word and action become more el- elevated. So I bless you with joy. Two. The day we were born, Hashem said, I bless you with courage. That you can have the courage to fulfill your life's mission. Don't limit yourself with Fear. I bless you to experience joy every time you do something you might be fearful of. Three, Hashem set us on the day we were born. I bless you with love. Love for Hashem, your creator, and love for being kind to other people. And four, I bless you with serenity. That will give you an inner calm. Unfortunately, when the malach tweaks the nose, we forget that bracha. But it's accessible anytime we want it inside. You just have to go and search for it. It's there. These four qualities are the skills that continue to make us up. We just have to go and get it. It's like we know all the Torah. But when we learn it here, it's a review. Today, we have to realize, it's the greatest day of your life. Because today is the only day that exists. Live in 24-hour compartments. All your earlier days are part of your mind's memory bank. All future days haven't occurred yet, so not here yet. Today has to be the greatest day of your life, because today is the only thing you're focused on. The way you experience today will be different if you decide to view it as a great day. Right now, today is the only day that you get to choose what you will think, what you will say, and what you will do. Don't worry about yesterday, it's gone. And tomorrow hasn't happened yet. So, what are some of the great thoughts you will think of today? What are some of the great actions you will do today? We never get to choose the exact nature of the day. Hashem sends us challenges every single day. And, the exact, and those challenges that I experienced today, will never be duplicated by any challenge that I've ever had or will have in the future. That's what makes living in 24-hour compartments in the present so unique. Today, you will be thinking about how you view today as the greatest day of your life. You have a choice. You might be able to say to yourself, Today seems to be quite an ordinary day. I don't see how it's any different. Or you'll say, I will make it as special as possible. And that's how we we strive and we grow in spirituality. When you take positive actions today, you now have more positive actions on your life's record books. Let me do as much as I can in today. How can I do the best that I can today? How can I think the best thoughts today? When you gain more wisdom today, you'll have more wisdom stored in your brain than ever before. When you do an act of chesed today, you'll have more acts of kindness stored. In your, in your banks, in your memory bank. So let's focus on today. Making and reaching your goals creates a meaningful life. This is one of the most important concepts for anyone who truly wants to be happy. Gratitude is an important element. I tell every one of my students and clients, please, start your day after shachris by reading the thank you card And make a list of 50 gratitudes. And say them and verbalize them every day. It's such a great way to start the day. It puts you in a positive mood. And now you're riding that wave of positivity. A rabbi was once giving a class on setting goals. Someone asked them, what do you consider the chief challenge people face when they focus on their goals? I replied, there's a common challenge to everyone. That they think they can't be happy while they're working on the goal. I'll only be happy when I get to the goal. But it might take a year or two. No, that's a mistake. You can be happy in the journey as you are happy when you get to the goal. People think they can only have peace of mind and joy when they reach their goals, but until then they feel a sense of incompleteness. No, allow yourself to feel good all the time. Be totally resolved to be joyful and serene on your journey to each goal. Each moment of life is precious. Each moment of life is a gift. In our generation... People don't believe in themselves as much as they should. Be realistic. Be open to the objective feedback from your friends. And keep upgrading your thoughts. You can control the image of how happy you are. You can control your level of courage. It's important to have positive self-image and to always clap yourself on the shoulder. For every kind of action that you do and every accomplishment that you do. Feel good about yourself. You give staka? Fantastic. You got a great, great a grade in school? Feel good. It's so important to self-validate yourself. We get enough togachah in this world. You have the free will right now of realizing that you are immensely valuable. That every one of us has a unique role in this world. And you, like everyone else, has a very important mission to fill for Hashem. You created an image of Hashem. You're a child of Hashem. You're precious to Him. Building your self-image is a lifelong process. Here are the nine principles for happiness and joy for people. Test yourself for the next 30 days. And read this list at least three times a day. Number one. I think appreciatively and gratefully. And I said already we can cover that with the gratitude list. With the gratitude... The thank you card. Number two. I speak and act joyfully and kindly. When you speak and act joyfully, your brain produces endorphins that create joyful feelings. Think positively. Speak positively. Smile. Believe me, I have people sit in their bedrooms and smile at the mirror for 50 times a day. To get them to do it. It's important. Three, I assume there's something good that's going to happen from everything. Develop the skill of reframing to see the good in everything. Find positive ways of viewing events. Four, I strive for meaningful goals. Being clear about my priorities is the first step to accomplishing my goals. Five, I see myself being the way I wish to be. Picture yourself speaking and acting in ways consistent with your wisest self. Six, I focus on finding solutions. What's my outcome? What outcome am I looking for? If a problem arises, I clarify the problem, and then I ask, what can I do to solve the problem? Seven, I let challenges develop my character. Look at difficulties as opportunities sent from Hashem to upgrade who you are, because they make you tougher and stronger, and better equipped to deal with life. 8. I consistently access positive states of mind my awesome brain stores my best states 9 interesting I wave at mirrors and I smile at them they always smile back and they wave back to me research has shown that smiling to yourself in the mirror creates a positive chemical in our body Reading these principles will help us become more joyful individuals, and joy is what we're seeking. Now, let me close with an amazing story about a woman from Venezuela. In the Caracas of my youth, I would wake up in the morning and count the parrots lined up on my windowsill. We were a tra- traditional Venezuelan family, Jewish family. My father would come home make Kiddush and Shabbos, followed by Kish, then a minute roast and then it was off to the television in the living room. When I was 15, something crazy happened. My older brother became from... He had attended some seminars led by a visiting rabbi, Rabbi Yogen from Mansi. He had a very famous brother, Nesim again. And my brother decided to live by the truth of the Torah. He got married shortly afterwards, with the first mechitza wedding in Venezuela. He had a mechitza built from scratch. This was a little too much for my parents who were very traditional. And a big tension filled our warm, comfortable home. Sometimes I'd go to my brother and my sister-in-law for Shabbos to spend time with him and see their kids who were cute. But I couldn't wait. I would count the minutes until Shabbos was over, bored beyond belief. I brought my friend, my boyfriend once, David. And his reaction was, Rebecca, if you want this kind of a life... Well, you just can count me out, because I'm out of here. David and I got married in 2001, and we moved to Los Angeles. There was a Canadian company called O that sold specialty cookies in mall stores. And they've been trying to break into the U.S. market. I had another brother living in L.A., who bought the first franchise for Southern California. And we decided to join him. His contract obligated him to open six cookie-o stores in ten years. A daunting challenge, and he needed help. So David and I exchanged the beautiful spring-like weather of Venezuela, and we came to Los Angeles. I enrolled in a fashion design program, while my husband rolled up his sleeves and plunged into cookie help. We both left the house at 5 o'clock in the morning, so we hardly ever saw each other, and there was tension in the marriage. Instead of feeling, feeling more settled as time went on, I began to feel as if the walls of my world were closing in on me. For one thing, my husband and I both f- never saw each other. The ma- calendar marched steadily towards the 10-year mark, yet our goal of six stores grew more elusive. Of the five cookie-holes we managed to open, four were forced to close within a year. So we were not doing well in business. Against this backdrop, it suddenly dawned on me that we faced another challenge. I wasn't getting pregnant. The doctors tried whatever milder treatments they could, but nothing worked. With further testing, they could not... They could... Try more aggressive treatments. I'd been anxious and depressed for a while, and I was afraid about to undertake these aggressive treatments. What if they failed? Could I withstand these cycles of physical and emotional pain? And the doctors told me that the success percentages were low—30 percent at best. One Thursday morning in August of 2004, shortly after I began the preliminary steps. For this first round of treatment, we attended the bar mitzvah of a relative. My parents flew in from Venezuela. I had a doctor's appointment scheduled that day with the OBGYN. And seeing my parents brought my emotions to a head, I started crying and crying to my father. The dam inside me broke and I burdened myself to my father. Rabbi again, who had close ties to the host, was at the bar mitzvah. He flew in from Muncie. As the affair wound down, and I was talking to my father about the difficulties we were having in the business and difficulties having a child. My father suddenly turned to me and said, why not ask the rabbi for a bracha for the business? And once you're there, ask him for a bracha for a baby. But you have to hear the back story. Rabbi Yagen had been instrumental in my brother and getting him religious and his tshuva. But the rest of us wanted nothing of it. When Rabbi again would come to Caracas, we'd get in the car when we heard that he was on the block, and we would run away and we'd call, is he out of town? Is the coast clear? To him, my father suggests turning to the same Rabbi for a bracha that he ran away from, showed the depths of his concern for his daughter. And it brought tears to my eyes. The Rabbi led my husband and me to a private spot outside the hall, outside of the mechitza. He closed his eyes and he said, That means you cannot have a baby without treatment. Commit yourself to keeping the mitzvahs for one year. And before the year is up, you'll be blessed. And you won't need any treatment. And he meant business. Total tzniahs, total kashrists, total shabbos, and total mishpacha. Everything. My husband, the guy who once suggested that he would split for me if there was any inkling of religion, calmly turned to me and said, I take the deal. I'm in. I couldn't believe it. Was this my husband speaking? Poppy? I looked at my father. But there's just no way I can cover my hair. Not happening. My father who was 60 years old at the time and in the habit of running away from rabbis looked the rabbi in the eye Rabbi I'll keep Shabbos instead of Rebecca covering her hair is that a deal? I couldn't believe my father's forcefulness Isaac, the rabbi says you're the most loving wonderful father but it doesn't work that way Rebecca needs to do this herself, no deals you can't keep Shabbos and her, she doesn't cover But if you keep Shabbos in addition to her covering, that's even more schos. I was in turmoil, unable to eat the rest of the day. That night Rabbi again sat with us for four hours, repeating words of Chizik until they began to sink in. In our naivet we saw this is a business transaction. You do XYZ for God, and He does ABC back for you. By the end of the night, my resistance was in shreds. I turned to David, it's worth it. I'd rather be from for a year than go through the treatments. I don't want to go through the treatments. If it doesn't work, I'll go back to my old life. It's waiting for me. My husband and I closed our eyes and jumped. We went from secular to shamit Torah or mitzvahs in one minute flat. That's what we spoke about before. Live in the moment. Live in that 24-hour compartment. The next morning... With LA suffering an intense heat wave and humidity, I put on a long skirt, long sleeves, and yes, stockings. We stocked our fridge with Chalav Yisrael products. By the time Shabbos came, we were fully prepared, down to a brand new hot plate. And in an unbelievable act of selfless love, my parents kept that first Shabbos with us, and they never looked back. And the story gets more intriguing. The only thing that took time was to cover my hair. I was so afraid my mother's going to be reacting in horror and shock when she finds out I covered my hair. I walked into the shaitl salon five times and walked out. On the sixth time I walked in, I came out with the shaitl. Rebecca, I would coach myself. I told this story because I wanted it to buttress the point that I made before. Just get through today, one challenge at a time. That's the goal of 2019, right? Tafshin Pei. Just get through today, one challenge at a time. No use worrying about tomorrow. It's not going to help. It'll greet you when you get there. There was only one thing standing in the way of the baby. The only cookie still operating was open on Shabbos. And we didn't go in. But malls require every store to be open every day of the year. 365 days a year. Closing on Shabbos would mean that if we come back to the business on Sunday, it's closed. They'll take it away. What do you do? People told us to sell the business to our manager every Shabbos. But we were not interested in halakhic loopholes. Look how firm she became. If I gave up so much for the sake of the deal, to have a baby... I'm not going to lose it all by gaming the system and playing the system. So the Kasha's organization that gave us Hashkacha explained that we needed to find a buyer for a minimum of 22.5% of the business, which is the percentage of the business profits that are made on Shabbos and Yom Tov. That way, all profits from Shabbos and Yom Tov would go to the partner, and our problem would be solved 100% the Chathchilah. But who wants to buy a fifth of a failing cookie store? The sad answer is no one. Fall turned into winter. Winter turned into spring. And still no buyer. And the stress growing with every day, passing day. We assumed that the store was open on Shavu, even though it saw that we were trying our best to sell it, so it wasn't held against us. But with the approach of Pesach, and now all, all these other Yisroim, the serum of having dealing with now chametz etc what are we going to do we learned about the idea of Kareis that if you own chametz, the punishment is Kareis you cut off from this world we started at the thought of this happening to people because of us the, the Jews would buy cookies on Pesach we don't want anything to do with it we reached the red line come what may we would not open our store this Pesach no matter what Even if it meant just abandoning the store. With each week that passed, the noose on our our neck grew tighter and tighter. It looked like we were actually going to walk away from the store. A few weeks before Pesach, the phone rings, it's my brother from Venezuela. I found you a buyer. He bought a number of Mama May's franchises to Latin America. It's another cookie franchise. And now he wants to break into the U.S. market. He's interested in a 50-50 partnership. And he's going to turn your cookie store, your Kikio o, into a Mama May. This was our angel from Shemayim. We can't ever work on Saturday, I told my brother. He said, no problem. We can't even take emergency phone calls on Shabbos. Fine. And ditto for every Jewish holiday. Don't worry about it. He's cool. Backdrop. Mama May's cookies are made by a company whose factories have an OU Hashkacha. We'd be selling a kosher product and getting kosher certification on the store would be simple. We never would have agreed to a partner with a non-kosher chain which would have caused a big disaster. In record time, the contract was signed. It couldn't have been easier. We had committed our lives to Hashem keherif ayin. Literally in the blink of an eye, is it surprising that the Yeshua came exactly the same way? Pesach passed. And we poured our energies into the new business, grateful to finally live to our end of the deal. No issues with Shabbos, no issues with Yom Tov. And then we called Rabbi again Rabbi, we're closing it on the year. You made a promise. What's with the baby? Where's the baby, Rabbi? So he said to my husband Tzadik, he said to me Tzadiket, listen to me. You've been from for close to a year. But it's only been two months since you closed Shabbos. Doesn't it seem to reason that the year starts from then? And the more we learned about Yiddishkeit, the more real it became for us. And the deal concept just faded away. Our Kabbalah Torah was true, Naasev and Ishmael. Now we did it because we loved Hashem. We jumped into it with little understanding with time. The feeling of connection grew and grew. In the early fall, about a year when we started, I started covering my hair. A year and a half after and we we cautioned our business, the news we were waiting for finally came. Amid a jumble of emotions, I sat on the floor and cried for three hours. Tears of gratitude, relief and joy continued to fall. Each challenge we had faced had paved another one. We were expecting. We named our daughter Bracha. This baby who according to nature should never have been born, couldn't have had a more fitting name. Eight months later, I found that I was expecting and we named our first son Yosef. We went on to have six more children. The deal morphed into a love affair. Today we keep the Torah not because we're seeking a specific payback, but because of the emotional bond we built with Hashem. Every day I make a conscious effort to show Hashem that I choose his path only out of ahava, only out of love, which is so much sweeter than the sweetest deal can ever be. Thank you so much for having me. Again, anybody who needs to ask me a question or anything can always reach me on drjackone18 at gmail.com or 305-206-1916. Have a wonderful day. Call to. Thanks everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by torahanytime.com.